Genesis three fourteen to 21. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between her offspring, your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Are we up on the words yet? Very good. From Paul, <clears throat> an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and from our brother Timothy to the church of God in Corinth and all of God's people through Achaia. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Let us give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the merciful Father, the God from whom all help comes. He helps us in all our troubles so that we are able to help others who have all kinds of troubles, using the same help that we ourselves have received from God. And just as we have a share in Christ's many sufferings, so also through Christ we share in God's great help. And if we suffer, it is for your help and salvation. And if we are helped, then you too are helped and given the strength to endure with patience the same sufferings that we also endure. And so our hope in you is never shaken. We know that just as you share in our sufferings, you also share in the help we receive. And we want to remind you, brothers and sisters, of the trouble that we had in the province of Asia. The burdens laid upon us were so great and so heavy that we gave up all hope of staying alive. And we felt that the death sentence had been passed on us. But this happened so that we should rely not on ourselves but only on God who raises from the dead. From such terrible dangers of death, he saved us. And will save us. And we have placed our hope in him that he will save us again. As you help us by means of your prayers for us, so it will be 
that the many prayers for us will be answered and God will bless us and many will raise their voices to him in thanksgiving for us. Amen. Right. They say the confession is good for the soul. So I'll start there. I was born and brought up in Liverpool, just at the time when the Beatles were becoming famous. I was converted in 1963 after an evangelist, Frank Marshall, from Northern Ireland. He gave his testimony at our church in preparation for an evangelistic campaign. And I got caught before the campaign started. For a number of years in the 60s and 70s, I sang with a gospel music group, which also led me into local preaching. And in 1979, I went into Northern Baptist College and enrolled on their newly created APT training scheme to train for the Baptist ministry. In time, I ended up seven years later at Woodnook Baptist Church at Accrington. And whilst there, and to my shame, I entered an adulterous relationship. And over the succeeding weeks and months, I watched almost everything that was important to me slip away beyond my grasp. I was a broken man. By come, it's gone quiet. In my pain, I went initially to Haslingdon Baptist Church because I was only three miles away, but also because it was across an administrative boundary line between the Baptists of Accrington and Blackburn, who knew me, and the Baptists of Rosendale, who in the main didn't. I also did know their minister of the time, the Reverend Norman Wade. Norman was lovely, and he loved me when I clearly didn't love myself. He also introduced me to two deacons, Lawrence Jones and Martin Grimshaw. These two godly men helped me enormously to recover from the car crash that had become my life, and we became friends. Sadly, Lawrence died not too long, too long after, but Martin and I are friends to this day. I don't think either of them had much of a clue as to the value of what they were doing for me. And I didn't really appreciate the value of what they did until some years later when my sanity had returned and I was able to think clearly again. 
But their kindness was God's love speaking to my heart. The book of Genesis has its origins in the mists of time. Its stories were believed to be passed on by word of mouth for many generations before being committed to writing in what scholars believe was during the era of the exile. We can tell this because the original accounts are filled with words of Persian origin, such as the word paradise, meaning a garden. The story of the fall of man is very poorly remembered by most of us. It's often remembered as being about a naked couple in a garden, which is always exciting, eating an apple and being banished for their wrongdoing by an unfeeling God who first blames a serpent for talking them into it, then blames the woman for deceiving the man, and then blames the man for being deceived. Because of the reference to pain in childbirth, it is widely assumed that sex itself is somehow being condemned as an evil, an attitude the church has never quite been able to get rid of over the years. You will search in vain for any reference to an apple in the text. And the text has to be read rather carefully to see what it is actually saying. The story of the fall isn't intended to be a historical event. It's a story intended to portray us a truth. It's set out to answer several key questions that people have asked down the centuries. Questions like, why are people so selfish? Why do we wear clothes? And why do serpents not have legs? Any of you who are parents or grandparents will know well the torture of the why question. Where every answer generates yet another question. I can see the smiles on your face that say, yes, you know, don't you? Mm. My grandmother used to say to me after she had attempted the umpteenth why question, she would say, why is a crooked letter and you can't straighten it? But I want to draw your attention to verse 21. Adam and Eve have just lost everything that they ever held dear. They have lost their innocence, they have lost their employment and their safety and have been cast out into an uncertain world. And then we read, and the Lord God made clothes out of animal skins for Adam and his wife. And he clothed them. God's kindness in the face of our failure, our weakness, or even our stupidity, 
becomes an indication as to why Adam's sin just didn't end it all there and then. God's love is big enough for the worst of our disasters. So never imagine that his love cannot be equal to the task. Whatever our failure, whatever our stupidity. Sarah and Alf, the couple in the middle of this picture taken on their wedding day, were married in about 1921. That's why they're all stiff and starchy, because cameras were very slow back then. He had come from a farming family in Holsall, near Ormskirk, in Lancashire. And she had moved to the city with her parents from the village of Cockshut, near Shrewsbury in Shropshire. And they set up home in the district of Kirkdale. And over the next 14 years, they had six children. And although they were Anglicans, they just happened to live directly across the road from Kirkdale Baptist Tabernacle. And over time, the Baptist chapel asked them to be a key holder so the people who needed to could gain access to the building by simply knocking on the front door of number 46 Bosefield Street. Towards the end of 1935, Alf became seriously ill. And early in the new year, he died, leaving Sarah a widow with six children. The youngest was Harold. He was just a year old. And Robert, the eldest, had to leave school and begin to earn a living at the tender age of 13. The Baptist chapel stepped in to offer assistance. And they offered Sarah a job as part-time caretaker to help make ends meet. Because the welfare state was still 13 years in the future. And Sarah changed her allegiance to Kirkdale Baptist Tabernacle and took her six children along with her. Between April 1940 and May 1941, Liverpool suffered badly at the hands of the Luftwaffe. And one of the casualties was Kirkdale Baptist Tabernacle which received a direct hit. Sarah's home was also badly damaged, being just across the road, and in due course, she was rehoused close to Everton's football ground in nearby Walton. After a period of sharing with the Carisbrook Baptist Church that had suffered in similar ways, when the Sunday school met in the tramway's canteen for several years. 
The Kirkdale Tabernacle Church merged with Carrisbrook, and then after the war, they moved to a new building, also in Walton, which was to become Stuart Road Baptist Church, which has only quite recently been demolished. That act of kindness by the Baptist Church leadership in 1936 led to four of Sarah's six children becoming baptized Christians. And one of the other two returned to the Anglican Church. Two of them went on to become deacons at Stuart Road. But that wasn't all. Sarah's six children all married and had children of their own. And Sarah ended her days in 1986 with 13 grandchildren. And nine of those became Christians. Of that nine, two became Baptist ministers. Three more became deacons in two different Baptist churches. Three more became leaders in other denominations. And the one that's left went to the USA and married a minister. Oh, and I nearly forgot. Alf's surname was Jump. He was my grandfather. And I believe you have met the other Baptist minister in the family. My cousin Philip who is a regional minister in the Baptist Union. One insignificant act of kindness in 1936 in the name of God has become a significant force for good throughout Merseyside and much of the Northwest. The origins of Corinth Go back to the Neolithic era. Or, for those of you who went to school at the same time as I did, the New Stone Age. <laughs> a man called Jason, famous for having searched for a golden fleece, was reputed to have been born at Corinth. It was strategically placed at a crossroads. The narrow neck of land was a land bridge between the southern part of Greek and its principal cities of Sparta, with its reputation for brave warriors, and Argos, with its first catalogue shop. <laughs> to the north, there was Athens, the capital city and the northern province of Macedonia. You remember? Come over to Macedonia and help us. This narrow neck of land was only four miles wide, and that's about the distance between here and Rottenstall. The other half of the crossroads was the fact that the inlet from the west was only four miles from the inlet from the east. And many seafarers found it easier and less risky a route to use the two inlets and then haul the boat across the neck 
rather than face the miles of rocky coasts and the many rocky islands that threatened those who ventured around the coastal route to the south. And by this means, Corinth became a lucrative trading port and city and became easily the richest of all of the Creek city-states. The Romans considered building a canal across the neck, but the technology wasn't available and nothing was done. A canal actually was built across the neck in 1893, just 2,000 years late and no doubt over budget. It was inevitable that Paul would end up in Corinth. He stayed there for 18 months, after which he moved on, subsequently communicating with them by letter. First and second Corinthians, as we have them in our Bibles, are numbers two and four of a series of four letters. We no longer have copies of one and three. We do know that the third letter was a very difficult one and caused some conflict between the people of the Corinthian church and Paul. Paul wasn't the world's greatest diplomat. So when he penned this letter that we have before us, he was attempting to rebuild his relationship with the people of Corinth. And he immediately asserts that he, God, helps us in all our troubles so that we are able to help others using the same help that we ourselves have received from God. That's why life gets beastly sometimes. God has a plan. Everything that happens to us happens for a purpose. Every experience gives us an understanding of the troubles and the hardships that we all face from time to time. Unemployment. Depression, illness, accident, homelessness, bereavement, and divorce. All of these and many others equip us to help others who also face similar problems. All these things awaken and grow compassion within us. Even today, 20 years on, whenever I hear about people in an extramarital affair or are suffering the consequences of one, my heart goes out to them because of the pain of my own experience, which comes back to me on such occasions. I've been there. I've done that. I've bought the T-shirt. We are constantly hearing about the failure of the church. I'm waiting for the picture to come because it's supposed to come at this point. 
We're one behind. There it is. There we go. The failure of the church. I thought that was about the best graphic of the failure of the church I could find. Lovely, isn't it? I don't ever remember learning how to baptize when I was at college. But there we go. I just went off and did it. The decline in attendances. The loss of evening services. The aging membership. And much else causes us worry about the church's very survival. And it is true that we are living in a world in which the standards that we have become used to are being flouted with an apparently increasing regularity. But I'm not discouraged by the church. I'm proud of the church. We live in the third richest country in the world but have the largest amount of serious hunger in the developed world. But I'll leave the politics of this scandal to another time. But when I look at the church, I am proud that the church has stepped up to the plate and has attempted to address this particular problem. Despite the fact that active Christians represent less than 10% of the nation's population and no more than 70% of the population even believe in God. 80% of all the food banks currently operating in Britain today are run by Christians. And the rest in the main are partially staffed by Christian volunteers. Most of these Christians wouldn't thank you for drawing them to the world's attention. They just get on with the job. They ignore the politicians who want to blame them for the hunger problem. They just get on with the job. This man is Ross Slater. He is, or perhaps was, an undercover reporter with the Daily Mail. Now you all know what he looks like, he's going to be less good as an undercover reporter. He tried to unearth a scandal by claiming food at the food bank in Nottingham in April. But he only succeeded in awakening the country to the problem so that the giving to the food banks went up fivefold overnight. They just get on with the job. The poorest look on with grateful amazement. The politicians look on in bemusement, unable to account for this phenomena driven by the compassion of these extraordinary people, which the country at large has been writing off as a spent force for as long as I can remember. This is the best evidence in recent days that says that Jesus is alive. That his love for the poorest goes on. And that his compassion has borne fruit in people's hearts. And that the church still lives.
and that the Holy Spirit is still active. And what's more, people are being saved when they see it all happening. Recent events in Britain have systematically destroyed people's trust in our institutions. Dr. Shipman's murders has meant that we distrusted the doctors and nurses. The banking crisis has meant that we've distrusted the banks. The MPs' expenses scandal has meant that we distrust the MPs. The phone hacking scandal means that we distrusted the newspapers, if we ever did trust them. The police corruption at Downing Street and at Hillsborough in Sheffield has meant that we distrust the police. And the child sex abuse scandal has meant that we stop trusting our clergymen, not to mention our show business people. And Edward Snowden has shown us that we can't even trust our secret services either. In these days, when we find it so difficult to trust anybody at all, when paranoia seems to be all that we are left with, we need to affirm once again that we trust Jesus to love us and to look after our best interests. Not as a leap of irrational faith, but because he has demonstrated his love for us on the cross 2,000 years ago. Our God is a God of compassion. He is a God who can and does intervene in the world Not to assert his authority, but to save his people from their sins. So that you and I are left with a choice. We can become part of the problem. And moan and complain about the state of the world. Or, we can become part of the answer. And affirm that God is still in charge. And he knows what he is doing. Let's pray.